0: What's up, everyone? This is episode number 66 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope everyone is staying safe. Um, Some of you might have noticed I delayed this episode a little today because I was waiting to see how National Treasures First Off the Line would play out. Well, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Then I delayed it a little bit more because there's some sort of truck or generator or something running in my neighborhood and it's been nonstop. Finally, I just decided, you know what, I got to get this thing recorded. So hopefully there's not too much background noise. I've got some vintage basketball talk for you guys later today. I'm very excited about that. That's going to be the main feature. Before I get there, though, I want to take a few moments to talk about the upcoming National Treasures release because we did get a checklist uh, either yesterday or the day before. And then the first off the line Dutch auction was this morning. So um, I talked about last year's release in episode eight. And I felt like, at that point, I felt like it was appropriate to pair that discussion um, with a conversation on group breaking. And because one thing, when I looked at last year's release, one thing that really stood out to me was the sheer amount of Luka Doncic cards that were included in that product. He had the most cards for any player in the release last year. And my overall assessment was that the 2018-2019 product was a sticker dump that used Luca and the overall appeal of the rookie patch autos to drive the product. Now, having rookies drive a product is nothing new, but I felt like Panini really mailed it in uh, on that release and they got pretty lazy with the other parts of the checklist. I speculated last year that this would drive the price of boxes up and I talked about the roll group breaking plate and all of that. So basically, uh, my take was that group breaks were originally designed to help people that were priced out of individual box breaks um, panini saw the opportunity and the popularity with these and continued to churn out more and more high-end products and what originally started as a solution to a problem created an even bigger problem or more problems in the long run um, so that anyway that's what that was what i had to say about 2018 2019. Um, Blowout has their pre-sale page up already for the new 2019-2020 product and they have a four box case listed for $17,500. And each one of those four boxes is slated to include the following, eight autographs or memorabilia, one base or parallel, and one printing plate. Now at the risk of sounding like a broken record. I looked at the, I looked over the 2019-2020 uh, checklist, and it feels like I could just copy and paste the same critique. Although I do have a few more things to add, um, I feel like this is yet another sticker dump that relies too much on the appeal of the ever-popular RPAs. And then this year there are some new twists, so let me break those down real quick. As you guys know, Zion's going to be the main chase of the product. If you haven't seen the RPAs yet, I know they've been showing them off on their social media. It looks like they're acetate this year. Uh, Now look, I love the look of acetate cards in general. Um, One of the problems with them though is that they can scuff easily. And I I hope that a lot of these don't come out of the product scuffed up. But um, anyway, someone on the blowout forums did a little number crunching and revealed the following... Um, there are 152,112 total cards in the production of this product. 1,135 of those are Zion. So the odds of hitting a Zion in general—that's anything that could be just base, you know, base cards, jerseys, or, or the RPAs, right? So the odds of hitting one are roughly 0.75%. Um, now when we're looking at autographs, that would be just 503 of those 1135 cards, which is a little less than half, meaning the odds of hitting a Zion auto are 0.33, which for hobby, I, from what they said, would be one in every 13 and a half boxes. So it looks like hobby boxes are going to cost anywhere between four and $5,000. And again, that's just going off some of the pre-sale numbers I looked at some of my notes from last year's episode and hobby boxes were selling in the $1,400 range. Um, And to me, it was a major bloodbath then. Um, But wait, there's a bonus. So looking at the checklist, I noticed a number of the cards have two capital letters by the card name, um, BC. Well, what does BC stand for? Well, in the Panini world, BC stands for blockchain. And we don't have a lot of information about what this will look like, but we have seen it in some of the recent football boxes. Um, From what I understand and from what I can see, they were in flawless. These were bonus hits, meaning they're not replacing anything that was supposed to come in a traditional football box. And I don't know if this is how the basketball will work, but this is what we have to go by so far. These were redemption cards um, that contained a code for a digital blockchain card. So there's no physical version. Um, that you could, quote, add to your digital collection, showcase to the world, or sell or auction for money. And um, there are about a 100 of these football redemptions currently listed on eBay. There are over 700 sold listings. The highest sale, according to eBay, was a Patrick Mahomes shield that it was clearly labeled as blockchain, and it sold for about $700. I've seen other Mahomes that sold in the $200 range. Look, I really don't get it, but that doesn't change the fact that it's happening. And um, you know, I figure, you know, Panini it's probably costs them next to nothing to do this. And if people are only going to be able to buy and sell those on the Panini or I'm sorry, yeah, to buy and sell those on the Panini website, I figure Panini's getting a cut of every sale. So, that's, you know, Fairly interesting. I can't imagine that basketball collectors will be all that interested in these, but um, you know what, if you can pull one and can somehow use it to help lick your wounds, more power to you, right? Now, if all of that doesn't get you excited enough, and you have a little more money burning a hole in your pocket, Panini fired up the good old National Treasures Dutch oven this morning, and things started off at $30,000, if you were to purchase at that price, which you know everyone knew that was high, right? So I don't think, I, I doubt we had any purchasers at that price, but if you were, taxes alone would tack on another two grand or so. Um, of course, it didn't sell out at that price. And in fact, it looks like it didn't sell out at any price. With two seconds left on the timer, people reported that boxes were still available at the floor price of $7,500. Once the timer ran out, they were pulled from the website. As I mentioned earlier, I delayed this episode a little so I could talk about this. I honestly thought they'd sell out, even at the I thought they'd probably sell out before the floor price, but you know, it was a complete guessing game. And um, with the assumption that these didn't sell out, we really don't know what's going to happen to them. And so I'll try and give you an update on social media if I figure anything out. You know, maybe once I publish this, we'll have some information. Um, but so far, we haven't seen anything. So, um, what were they trying to sell for this cost? You know, what was so special about first off the line this year? Well, let's hear it straight from Panini's press release. So I'm going to read from that real quick. And it said, "It's arguably the most anticipated NBA trading card release." dot, 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 ever. Panini America's 2019-20 National Treasures Basketball First Off the Line Premium Edition will launch Thursday in what promises to be a bona fide online shopping spectacle. And for good reason. Uh, Let me interject here. It was quite the spectacle. Uh, Let me continue. The special First Off the Line Edition of 2019-20 National Chargers basketball is loaded with special content that will not be available anywhere else. On average, each box will deliver one Stars and Stripes rookie patch autograph numbered to 30 or numbered to 3, eight autographs or memorabilia cards numbered to 99 or less, a printing plate 101, and one base or parallel card numbered to 99 or less. And then it closes in all bold letters, newsflash, more than half the first off the line, Boxes will deliver both the Stars and Stripes RPA and a traditional RPA or RPA parallel number to 99 or less. end quote, something to think about real quick. If um, those first off the line boxes have first off the line and traditional RPAs in them, uh, where are they getting those traditional RPAs? You know, where are they getting pulled from? Well, it would have to be the hobby boxes. So that was kind of interesting. Um, I can't tell you with any certainty where all of this is headed. Um, I can tell you that compared to the history of the hobby, a lot of the stuff we've seen lately is not normal. So those of you that are new, um, please just keep that in mind. You know, I don't even know when I'm telling you that what exactly that's going to mean for the future, but just try to keep that context in mind, that what we're seeing is not normal. Um, one, you know, I was reading some more commentary on this. One blowout poster likened it to the crypto movement in 2017. I thought that was an interesting post, so I want to read that real quick. He said, Prices keep going up, and we, the people who have been in this and studied it the longest, know it isn't based on anything other than speculation. Not only are box prices going up, they're accelerating upwards. It's the greater fool theory. Breakers might be able to buy this and do Okay. There's no other way to actually open a box of this and do well other than being one in 100 boxes lucky. So what will happen is that people will buy boxes and look for a greater fool to sell them to. It's worked for the past few years. But at some point, those people who bought Bitcoin at $19,000 could not find the next fool to sell them to. Eventually, that will happen to this hobby as well. End quote. So, you know... I can't speak. Like I said earlier, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who knows what's going to happen, but that's definitely something to consider. I think that's a good analogy. I think that sounds reasonable. Um, you know, only time will tell. Um, but for the time being, for those of you that just want to pick up a few cards of your favorite team or your favorite player, I feel that buying singles is probably the best route Uh, I do fear that a lot of sellers are going to try and pass the cost of their breaks onto the secondary market. Um, One of my friends, Jason, commented on that. He said, it's a lesson a lot of the new money in the hobby is going to learn. There is no direct correlation between singles prices and box prices. Just because you spend $5,000 on a box does not make a Glenn Rice sticker auto worth more than $10. Now, Um, I understand that the allure of joining in on a break is always there, but it looks like these things could be pretty brutal this year. And when I first posted on my Instagram about the first off the line boxes, a number of people expressed frustrations at the pricing. Uh, In this case, it's not even the distributors. It's coming straight from Panini. And if that pricing really disgusts you, I would suggest, you know, speak with your wallet and avoid group breaks if they're the ones breaking this product because they're going to pass that price on to you and that's also going to tell Panini that what they're doing is okay and they can keep doing it. And to a lesser extent, you could argue that overpaying for singles on the secondary market supports that as well. You know, I know it's it's tough to hold back at some point. I probably will be grabbing some Pacers singles. I'm going to try and stay away from the group breaks. You know, I'm not here to tell you what to do with your money. You have to make your own decisions. If nothing else, though, I hope that this opening segment helped you be a little more informed as you go to make whatever choices you'll ultimately make. All right. Switching gears, uh, that was the present and future element of this week's Wax Museum podcast. Now it's time to pivot and talk a little bit about the past and um, or really haven't talked a lot about vintage on the show. Uh, I know I had an episode early on about my 72-73 top set. I'm a big vintage fan, uh, but I do try and cover all areas of the hobby's history. Today I want to take some time to look back on and appreciate the 1957-58 top set and some of the many players that were a part of it. Um, i talked a little about it in the past when I did my History on NBA card series. If you haven't checked those out yet, make sure to download and listen to episodes 53 through 55 a little later. But real quick, here's a synopsis of basketball cards prior to 1957. Technically, the first basketball cards were printed all the way back in the early 1900s. There was a Murad cigarette multi-sport set that had a Williams College card in 1910. There was a Canadian set called Willards that featured a female team, the Edmonton Grads, in 1924. 1933, Sport Kings featured the first four cards with professional basketball players. However, none of these were standalone pro basketball sets. That wouldn't come until 15 years later when we had the 1948 Bowman set set. Um, The most iconic card from that set is George Mikan's Rookie, and, and those can be fairly difficult to track down. This was not technically an NBA set, though. At that point, the league was called the BAA, and it changed to the NBA when they merged with the NBL in 1949. So while this set is considered to be iconic by today's standards, the problem was the sport wasn't very popular so, And you'll see that that's a recurring theme for several decades. We didn't have another attempt at a pro basketball set until Topps threw their hat into the ring in 1957 with the first dedicated NBA set. Now, the sport itself had changed quite a bit since Bowman set in 1948. In the mid-50s, the NBA introduced the shot clock, and the game was played at a much quicker pace. We don't really have a lot of info about the behind the scenes of why Topps thought a gamble on a basketball set would be worth it at the time. Um, All I've really seen looks more like speculation. A very popular theory is that their baseball and non-sport cards were doing really well, and they thought the power of the brand might help move a basketball set as well. Well, truth be told, it didn't. And uh, the set wasn't received well at the time, It's not surprising then that tops bowed out for a while, and we didn't see another dedicated set from a major manufacturer until Fleer gave it a go in 1961. As you guys know, that set has a similar story. It wasn't popular, and Fleer abandoned ship for a while as well. But uh, back to 57 tops. As far as the logistics of the set itself, it's an 80-card set. Um, What we have been able to figure out about the set deals more with printing. Because we've seen a picture of an uncut sheet, and the uncut sheet features 132 cards on it. Keep in mind, there's only 80 in the set. So 30 uh, players appeared on there once, 49 players were double printed, and then for some reason Bob Pettit showed up four times on every sheet. Well, of course, the most coveted card in the set, Bill Russell, is a single print. You know, it would have been nice if if he was on that sheet four times, maybe would make those a lot um, easier to get your hands on. But um, if you own any of these 57 Tops, you might also notice that for some of them, the backs were printed upside down. It was around this time that Tops was working to standardize trading card sizes. Maybe the next time you're at a show, um, try to find a 1956 Tops baseball card. You'll notice it's a little larger. Um, So 57 was their first year printing on this new standardized size, and it definitely looks like they were figuring it out as they went along. Um, Of those 80 cards, then, 20 of them are Hall of Fame rookies, which I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again, unless for some reason there is a huge, uh, a major hobby drought of sorts in the future. We saw that with... um, you know, prior to 86 Fleer, it wasn't huge, but it was, it was multi-year. Um, but even 86 Fleer didn't have that many, didn't have 20 Hall of Fame rookies. So of course the flagship rookie in this group is Celtics Hall of Famer, Bill Russell. Um, other rookies of note include Bob Cousy, Tommy Heinsohn, uh, Bob Pettit, Dolph Shays, and Bill Sharman. The set also has Bobby Leonard's rookie, who's another Hall of Famer. A lot of people might know him better as Slick Leonard. Um, he's most known for coaching the Pacers to three ABA titles in the 70s. He has a pretty crazy basketball story, though. He helped Indiana University win a title in 53. He was on board the Lakers team plane that crashed in 1960. He's announced Pacers games on the radio for decades. Uh, the man is literally seen played with or coached every major player in the sports history. I ran into him at a, a Pacers game a number of years ago, and um, it, it was one of the most exciting moments I've had in my basketball fandom, which, um, you know, I don't know if, if he really understood that, uh, or thought I was just some bumbling idiot, but uh, that was a real special moment for me. I'll fi- I figure I'll do an episode about him at some point, so don't be surprised if you see that in the future. But uh, anyway, back to 57 tops. Earlier, I referenced the struggle that Tops went through the, to uh, print this thing and to get it right. And you could say that the set itself is a relic of a league that was also struggling to do the same, to, to kind of get things right. And even though we still had a lot of um, two-handed set shots in the area, I'm not talking about play styles. I'm talking about integration. And before I talk about the integration of the NBA itself, it's worth mentioning that this movement began way before 1950. And I don't want to forget about those teams and players and the impact that they had on the game. So if you're you know looking at this or listening to this for reference later, Some examples of those teams, if you want to look them up, include the Commonwealth Five, the New York Rens, the Harlem Globetrotters, um, the Toledo White Huts broke the color barrier for the National Basketball League in 1942. There's a lot of really interesting history, and I would encourage you to read more about it on a website called blackfives.org. That's all part of a nonprofit organization called the Black Fives Foundation that works to research preserve, showcase, and teach the pre-1950 history of African-Americans in basketball while honoring its pioneers and their descendants. All right, so that brings us then to 1950 in the NBA, and this is circling back to 57-58 tops. We all know about the Bill Russell rookie in this set. Bill was the league's first black superstar, Um, What a lot of people overlook, however, is the fact that this set also includes two of the three pioneers in integrating the league, uh, in Nat Sweetwater Clifton and Earl Lloyd. So a little backstory to that, in 1949, the NBA's Board of Governors agreed that no franchise would sign a black player. And this was then revisited the next year because you had several teams um, I think most notably the Knicks and the Celtics that expressed interest in adding black players to their rosters. And one of them, um, the Knicks, even threatened to leave the league if they couldn't. And um, I don't know if this was a a social movement so much as it honestly, you know, from what I've read, they felt like it could give them a competitive advantage. Um, so anyway, the owners revoted and integration was approved six to five. So, once that pathway was cleared, um, you had three players that um, three black players that were then um, allowed to play in the league that year. You had Chuck Cooper, who was the first uh, black player drafted. You had Nat Clifton, who was the first black player signed. And then you had Earl Lloyd, who was the first black player to debut in an NBA game. It just so happened that his game was scheduled before the other two. Um, Now, Cooper, unfortunately, was not in the 1957 top set because his career ended in 1956. I believe his first real card, or actually his only card, was um, kind of an obscure Panini Hall of Fame card that they made in 2019. There might be another one out there that was made before that, but I haven't found one. Um, Now, Lloyd and Clifton, however, did make the set. And both of them are deceased now. I actually sent a fifty-seven tops to Earl Lloyd in the mail in 2013, hoping to get it signed. And at the time that was a $35 card. I was a little nervous about sending it. You know, there was no guarantee that it would come back. I was just using an address I found online. Well, after a while I, I thought it was a goner. But a little over a hundred days later. It showed up at my house with a nice blue signature on it. Um, I will definitely try and show that off uh, during the week if I can find that in in my boxes. But um, Earl passed away a couple of years later in 2015. So I'm very thankful to have this one brief interaction with him. I wish I could go back and thank him again and, and not just for the autograph, but for everything that he went through. And um, it's still, you know, it's, it's kind of a cool little story that I'll have with me forever. Um, Clifton, on the other hand, passed away in 1990, so I was never able to interact with him. But um, what these three did for the game was immeasurable. And they were all good basketball players. You know, anyone that makes the NBA is a good basketball player. Um, however, there was another player, um, another Black Hall of Famer in this set, aside from Russell that came after them that was an absolute star on the hardwood. And there's a good chance you, you, maybe you've never even heard of them. So I want to take some time today, um, throughout the rest of this episode to talk about a guy named Maurice Stokes. And since we're talking about him, I'm going to also talk a little about another hall of famer named Jack Twyman. And as you'll see in a little bit, you really can't talk about one, without the other. Those that have heard of Maurice Stokes uh, usually default to talking about his injury right They'll say oh that was the guy that was paralyzed. Well, you know that's understandable because that is a huge part of his story and I'm going to talk about that today as well. but I also want to make sure I devote some time to the person that he was both on and off the court. You know I don't want him to be, um, recognized just for something horrible that happened to him. You know, I don't think that's fair um, for somebody to be characterized in that way. So I, I want us to to look at his life as a whole. Um, a lot of my source material is going to come from a number of different websites, uh, as well as a book I read titled An Unbreakable Bond, The Brotherhood of Marie Stokes and Jack Twyman. And that was written by a guy named Pat Faribault. Um, all right. So here's a little bit of background on Maurice Stokes. Maurice Stokes was born in the Pittsburgh area, and he went to a high school in that area called Westinghouse High. And it's been noted that he was a bit of a late bloomer on the court. So as his high school days drew to a close, he really only received about 10 offers from college coaches. And he chose to go to school at a college called St. Francis University, which is a small little school outside of Pittsburgh, um, located in a place called Loretto, Pennsylvania. Stokes himself was a pretty big guy, especially for this era. Um, I've seen several different weights listed, but they all hover around him being um, 6'7 and 240 or 250 pounds. And to help put that into perspective, LeBron James, who's a big guy as well, as you guys know, Uh, is currently listed as 6'9 and 250 pounds. So, during Stokes' four years at St. Francis, he averaged um, almost 22.5 points per game. And rebound stats weren't tallied during his first season, but he ended up with over 1,800 recorded rebounds. And during his senior year, he was voted an All-American, and NBA owners were taking notice. He probably got a lot more attention then than he did coming out of high school. Um, His size and his style of play was unheard of in the NBA at that time. I'll give you one of the quotes from this book that I read. Um, They said, he's fast. He's so fast for a big man that he can bring the ball down the court, and you don't realize the speed he's really traveling. He's much more agile and graceful than and more on the lines of a Bob Pettit. Uh, now, hearing someone comment about his speed was interesting because coming out of high school, a lot of college recruiters felt he was slow. So that that thought kind of changed over time. Um, another quote from the book states, Maurice was the first versatile big man, one capable of playing guard, forward, or center. A quarter century before Magic Johnson, there was Stokes, a big man who was adept as a ball handler, scorer, passer, rebounder, shot blocker, and defender. It's not a surprise then that this transitioned well to the pro game. Um, We really have to rely on what people who saw him play have to tell us. There's not a lot of footage of him playing. You can go on YouTube, there's a couple of minutes, um, but that's it. So we really have to rely on the people there that were there to watch him. Um, Now, So, like I said, that transitioned well to the pro game. Stokes was picked number two overall in the 1955 draft by the Rochester Royals, and that's actually the current-day Sacramento Kings. They moved from Rochester to Cincinnati in 1957. They became the Kansas City Omaha Kings in 72, then the Kansas City Kings in 75, before moving to Sacramento in 85. Um, they won a title in 1951 in Rochester, and that's why the Kings have that little championship tag on their jerseys that we see on some of the higher-end products. It's definitely not because the Sacramento Kings ever won a championship. All right, anyway, another Pittsburgh-area player um, happened to be drafted by the Royals in the next round of the draft. It was a guy that Maurice had played against some um, kind of on playing streetball ball. Um, and just, you know, at rec leagues and that type of thing. I think they did uh, face at some point in high school or college as well. And that was a guy named Jack Twyman. Um, navigating the league as a rookie was tough enough for each one of these guys, but their experiences were very different because Stokes was black and Twyman was white. Um, even in the late 50s, it wasn't uncommon for black players to have to stay at different hotels, or teams with black players had to pick hotels strategically. And if restaurants even served black players, they were often served food on styrofoam plates, which was the general sign that, you know, you have to take this to go. You can't actually dine in here. To their credit, um, from what I've read, a lot of the white players, teammates that he had did their best to stay away from some of these establishments and look out for him. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it was an incredibly difficult time. Um, and those things, you know, the, the few things that I mentioned really only scratch the surface when it comes to the racism that these players dealt with. Um, back on the court, while the Royals themselves were not very good, Stokes and Twyman were. And in Stoke's first NBA game, he scored 32 points, he grabbed 20 rebounds, and he dished out eight assists. Um, That season, he averaged 16.8 points, 16.3 rebounds on his way to becoming Rookie of the Year. Bob Cousy called him the first great athletic power forward. And Cousy has played with and watched a lot of great power forwards, so that's a huge compliment coming from him. Um, In Stokes' second season, he put up similar numbers. The Royals moved to Cincinnati for his third season. He put up similar numbers once again. And then in the final regular season game of that third season, Stokes was knocked unconscious and hit his head on the court, and he was out for almost three minutes. I mean, you, you guys have seen people take hard hits in today's game, you know, Now a player would go to the locker room, they would go through the concussion protocol, and they probably wouldn't return. Well, that was not the case in the 1950s. Instead, Stokes was revived with smelling salts and returned to the game. And then shortly after, he played the first game of the playoffs with a splitting headache. And he performed moderately well, all things considered. However, when it was time to fly back to Cincinnati, he felt very ill. Before the flight, he threw up several times. He thought that he could make it, though, because the the trip um, from Detroit to Cincinnati was a a pretty short flight. So um, about 10 minutes into the flight, though, something was clearly wrong. Maurice was sweating profusely. He was bleeding from the mouth and the ears. He was convulsing. When the plane landed, eight players rushed him, carried him, because remember, he's a big guy, carried him to an ambulance, and then he was off to the hospital. Once there, he was unable to move his body for weeks as he laid in a hospital bed in a coma, and he was diagnosed with post-traumatic encephalopathy, which I think I got that right. Give me a little slack if I didn't. Um, But I had to look that up. That's a brain injury that damaged his motor control center. He was eventually able to regain his state of mind, but was left uh, paraplegic, and that made it very difficult for him to communicate with others. And the road in general, the road to recovery for Stokes, was long and difficult. Um, Working on his side, though, was the fact that Stokes had an incredible amount of drive. I mean, that's really what got him to that point to begin with. But he had an incredible amount of drive and determination now to make this thing happen. One thing he didn't have, however, was the financial means. Um, And this, I'm going to take this paragraph from the book that I read. It says, several weeks after Stokes was admitted to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, Jack Twyman paid his teammate a visit and found Maurice's mother crying outside of her son's room. Despite taking out a second mortgage on their home, she told Twyman that she and her husband would soon be out of money to cover Maurice's mounting medical bills. The family was not economically in a position to move him back to Pittsburgh. Well, because Twyman was a non-relative and an Ohio resident, he qualified under state law to serve as Stokes' legal guardian. And he officially assumed that title in April of 1958. There's a story in this book about Maurice opening a bank account somewhere in the city, but not knowing where that money was. So Twyman um, decided he would take action. He drove to nine different banks before he found which one it was um, and used that to start paying his teammates medical bills. Um, Twyman also realized that Stokes Fall occurred as a member of the Royals and he sought out workers' comp. That was a lengthy process that involved him suing the state and eventually he won. And from that point forward, Twyman used whatever influence he had and whatever creative means he could to continue raising money. Um, there's even a story in the book about how he convinced a grocery chain to carry a specific pasta sauce, and by doing so, the sauce company agreed to pay him a certain amount of money for every jar sold. Um, at one point, a wealthy business owner named Milton Kutcher approached Twyman about starting a benefit game to raise money, and this game became a regular thing for a while. Um, It was a very big deal, and all of the major players showed up on their own dime. So it was encouraging to see everybody come together and make this happen. Um, Even Wilt Chamberlain. People begged him to do all sorts of Legends games. Supposedly, this is the only one he would ever do. And, And that shows you how much Maurice meant to these guys. In addition to helping provide for Maurice financially, Twyman continued to be a great helper and friend. Um, this book talks about all of the visits to the hospital and, and him arranging trips for Maurice to get away. It talks about Twyman's family forming a bond with Maurice as well. It was really incredible. Um, and this went on for about a dozen years. All along the way, Maurice was improving quite a bit, and he hoped to be able to walk on his own one day, you know, each day involved an intense amount of physical and speech therapy. Um, before he learned to speak again, him and Twyman developed a system of communicating that involved spelling out words by blinking his eyes. Twyman would ask him, Does this first letter begin before or after the letter M? If Stokes blinked once, that meant it was before. If he blinked twice, it meant after. And he'd say, Okay, is it A? Is it B? and so on and so on, so Stokes could spell out the words that he was trying to say. The amount of patience and dedication that both men devoted to this cause was remarkable. Despite these improvements though, Stokes Health took a turn for the worst in December of 1969. In February of 1970, he developed a blood clot. Um, In March, he suffered a heart attack and he died on April sixth at the age of 36. Since that time, both Stokes and Twyman have been inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, and Twyman actually worked pretty hard to get Stokes there too, which shows that he was an advocate for him even after his death. Um, Stokes was turned down by voters over the course of several years, but he finally made it in 2004. And during that ceremony, Um, You know, it's not a surprise that Twyman was there to accept the award for Stokes. And he said, whatever I've done for Maurice, I've gained tenfold. Let me just say, congratulations, big fella. You made it. Um, Twyman passed away, I believe, in 2012. And then in June of 2013, the NBA created the Twyman Stokes Teammate of the Year Award. From the basketball card side of things, I'm super excited, um, really honored to be able to narrate their history. Thanks to the 1957-58 top set, I knew the story already, um, but I I wanted to read this book to learn a little bit more about it, and now I I get to share it with you guys. Maurice Stokes only played three seasons, so the fact that we even had basketball cards during one of those years was was not likely. Um, however, we did, and that said, is still fairly accessible, uh, and that's one way we can continue to remember these two guys, but that's just one small way. As I close out today, I want to shift gears a little bit because there's obviously a lot of tension in our country at the moment, and I want to make it clear from the start here that I don't have the answers to some of the problems that we're facing, and I don't claim to. I also recognize this is not a political podcast, nor do I intend to take it in that direction. However, a lot of what we're facing right now is not a political issue, but a human one. And this podcast focuses on a very small segment of human history, and that's the history of basketball, a sport that we all love. And even in talking about 1957 tops, you know, let's face it, something that's just printed on cardboard, it prompted us to examine the racial climate of the League and the nation in the 1950s. It provided a segue to talk about a white man and a black man that formed a unique bond. Uh, the historical and the human components here are inseparable. And I would venture to say that a lot of you guys collect cards, you know these little relics, right? these little pictures of men playing a game, uh, but you collect cards Because the people depicted on these cards have some significance to you. And a lot of these players we collect are current players. I'm sure you've seen it this week, be it through news or social media. A lot of the league's current players and coaches have been using their influence, their power, their platform to communicate the hurt that a lot of people are feeling and have been feeling for a long time. I've tried to understand this some in the past, um, but it's becoming more clear to me by the day just how ignorant I've been at times. So a lot of NBA players are encouraging us as fans and more importantly, fellow humans, to use whatever platform and privilege we might have to communicate the same. Maybe if you're a parent, you know, you need to think about what conversations you're having with your kids. In my case, I'm a teacher. I'm always thinking, uh, what can I do now to keep these students safe in the future? What can I do to better equip them to deal with the world that extends beyond the four walls of my classroom? And I've tried, um, but I hope I understand that world a little bit better now, and I hope I can devote uh, my future to understanding that world a little bit better. So I think that this call from these players and coaches to first listen, to examine our situations, and then to consider the areas that we influence, I think these are worthwhile and really mandatory efforts. And normally this is the part of the show where I ask you to you know, weigh in on a topic and respond, but in moments like this, asking you to post about national treasures seems pretty trivial. And like I said earlier, I don't have the answers to some of the stuff that's come to a head in the last week. I'm a white dude from the Midwest. You know, I'm constantly learning. What I will say, though, is this. One of the quotes that I read from Jack Twyman this week stuck with me. uh, And of course, it pertained to his teammate and friend, Maurice Stokes. He said, Maurice was on his own. Something had to be done. And someone had to do it. I was the only one there, so I became that someone. If it wasn't clear before this week, I think it's very clear now. When it comes to the racism that is so prevalent in the United States, something has to be done, and someone has to do it. Listen to the people that are hurting around you, think about your life right now and the people that you influence. And think about what you can do today to, as Jack Twyman phrased it, become that someone. Until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.